Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Catherine Hatton, Programme Director for the IFG Academy here at the Institute for Government. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be able to chair this particular panel, not least because I get to ask the questions of all of my colleagues. From devolution to net zero, standards in public life to the future of regulation, we have an excellent panel of IFG experts to explore a range of key policy areas that this and future governments will need to focus on. Uh, joining me on the panel today uh, are my colleague Tim Durrant, who leads our Minister's Programme and works with me on the IFG Academy, our Learning and Development Wing. Jill Rutter is our Senior Fellow, leading work on Net Zero, formerly running our Brexit programme. Yes, Brexit, we might mention that. Uh, and all-round experts on many, many aspects of government. Akash Porn oversees our devolution programme and was part of the expert panel advising the Independent Commission on the Con Constitutional Future of Wales, putting his expertise into practice. Uh, and Matthew Gill leads our public bodies programme, including a new programme of work that we have on regulation. So plenty of topics not yet covered today and probably some topics that have been covered today that we will be uh, talking about. Uh, I'm going to ask a few uh, questions or just a quick question round at the beginning, but I do want to get to all of your questions as quickly as possible. So please do, if you're watching online, uh, start posting the questions on Slido. If you're in the room, please do get them ready. We will try to get through as many as possible. Tim, uh, turning to you first. Uh, we, we were talking about it in the last session. Uh, sorry, my microphone. Uh, both the government and Labour have pledged to do more to improve standards. How is that going? So um, we know that the Prime Minister wanted to make a big deal out of this when he took over. You know, in his Downing Street speech, he said he would lead a government of integrity and accountability at every level. He wanted to mark the difference between himself and his predecessors. And I think we should give him some credit. I said this at Labour Party conference last year, and I wasn't very popular, but I do think Rishi Sunak has uh, taken some important steps on this. He... Um, he saw early on in his tenure a couple of high-profile ministerial resignations. He saw Dominic Raab and uh, Nadeem Zahawi resign for different reasons. And I think Boris Johnson probably would have fought to keep those people in his cabinet. But uh, Sunak said, OK, uh, they've done wrong and they should go. He's also, last summer, uh, published a report looking at how the government could improve standards. And while there were some things that they didn't say they would do, most notably giving the independent advisor on ministerial interest the ability to start an investigation without the PM's permission, there were lots of steps, particularly enforcing rules on what ministers and civil servants can do after they leave government. So the Conservatives have made some positive steps. Labour have made a big deal of this over the last couple of years, and um, formerly Angela Rayne and now Nick Thomas-Simmons are committed to this idea of a uh, independent integrity and ethics commission, which will take over some of the regulators in this space. That is still quite thin on detail. We don't know exactly how that's going to work, but we do expect that they want to make that um, change early on if they do get into government. So I think what's interesting on this space is actually a bit of differentiation between the parties, and it's not really sort of top ticket item in terms of um, the election campaign, but it, we are seeing a difference of approach. The question is, will Labour flesh out details before the election? Will the Conservatives talk about this anymore? Or is, is what they published last summer just the end of the, the road for this? Brilliant. Nice rattle through. I'm sure there will be others in the audience who've got more questions about that particular agenda. But first of all, Jill, um, net zero, how big an issue do you think that will be at the election? I think it might be quite a big issue um, because what we're starting to see is sort of battle lines being drawn on net zero. But actually, rather than focus on what's going on at the election, 
just want to focus on what's going on right now, because I think we're in a really quite interesting position. With the Prime Minister, you know, after the ULES by-election success, of course, ULES, as you all know, isn't about net zero, really, but took the message that there were votes to be had in taking what he describes as a pragmatic and proportionate approach to net zero, making sure that he was sensible about the costs. And actually, he's switched the rhetoric quite a lot on net zero, much more sceptical than we've heard from UK prime ministers before. And he's done some, you know, we might say quite misguided performative things like the oil and gas licensing bill that had its second reading finally on Monday. You were a bit more Monday. critical than that in the book. I was a bit more critical. I mean, you know, <laughs> sort of... Um, but what's really interesting is actually the government is actually doing quite a lot of quite sensible things. It's sort of actually stuck to quite a lot of things it said it would do. Um, it's, uh, it introduced quite a lot of sensible measures, which it did on the 18th of December, which is usually sort of take out the trash day, but this was actually hide your green announcements day, which was quite interesting. And I, I've looked at all this and sort of thought, this is really weird, because normally you talk about rhetoric action gaps in the other direction. And so I was talking last week to Chris Stark, who's the chief executive of the Climate Change Committee, the outgoing chief executive. If any of you want a job, it's a great job, uh, do apply. And Chris said he'd actually called this green hushing, where the government, rather than greenwashing, which we've got used to, was actually just being very, very quiet on the good stuff it was doing and actually being quite noisy about the, uh, uh, the more you know, stuff that might appeal to members of the net zero scrutiny group. So I think that's really interesting on the Conservative side. On the Labour side, we have this continual question. In different times, they committed to this 28 billion a year. That has now become 28 billion at the, towards the end of the parliament. The 28 billion isn't 28 billion, because actually it's on top of what the Conservatives are doing, net that off, gets nearer to 20 billion, etc., etc. And we keep on being told it's only when the fiscal rules allow. And we all know that depending on what Jeremy Hunt does in a number of budgets, there may not be very much fiscal headroom at all, particularly when you think of other demands. So I think it's really difficult. And Labour is now focusing down very much. We heard from Nick Thomas-Simmons on this mission, which is now about powering up great British energy, mm. which in a sense is the sort of vaguest part of the plans, actually. You know, it'd be more sensible just to say we're doing all these other things rather than just say we're going to focus on something that frankly won't come into being for a couple of years when you think about legislation. So I think it's really interesting that I think we might hear quite distant rhetoric and actually in terms of actions two parties not that far apart. Okay, brilliant. Um, Akash, uh, I've already done a couple of big issues. Another one, English devolution. Uh, what are some of the differences between Labour and the Conservatives on that? Well, I mean, even before we get to the general election, of course, we're going to have quite a big year for English devolution. So in, uh, in May, we've got 10 Metro Mayo elections taking place. So I think that's going to be a really big moment, at, actually, at which to assess the success of devolution so far and the extent to which it's become embedded and these metro mayoral uh, posts have become embedded as, as important players um, at the local and regional level. So, you know, I'll be keeping an eye on, on turnout. And also be interesting to see, you know, whether voters are starting to judge and vote for mayors based on their own records rather than just through the, the prism of, of party labels. So might the conservative incumbent... Uh, mayors um, get dragged down by their party label or, or, or will voters kind of judge them 
um, in their in terms of their own records. So that's that's going to be really interesting. And then meanwhile, I mean, the, the, this is an area, maybe quite a rare one, where I mean, the government does have actually a sort of reasonable. Um, story in terms of achievement since 2019, the additional devolution deals they've concluded, and it's indeed still got an active agenda implementing a load of those deals. So we've got the trailblazer deals being put into practice next year in Greater Manchester and West Midlands, new deals coming on stream, well, three new ones this May, a few more next next year too. So it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, this is going to be an area where right up to and beyond the general election, um, the government, DLUC as the lead department, are going to be quite busy just concluding and, and implementing what they've already achieved. Um, to come on to the, the general election, though, I mean, this is an area where, you know, it's quite striking the extent to which there aren't big differences actually between what we've heard from Labour and, and what the government have, have been talking about for the, for the last few years. Um, I mean, both parties want to complete the map of English devolution to extend devolution to the 50% or so of the country that's been left out so far. They both want to build on the existing institutions, deepen the powers of the, the existing mayors. Um, in various places. And, and we might start to see a bit of a sort of narcissism of small differences, because as an opposition, you probably don't want to be campaigning on the basis that, good job, Michael Gove, you'll see more of the same from us. Um, probably from an IFG perspective, we'll be quite um, you know, uh, pleased to see a government that doesn't try and rip things up and, and, and reinvent the wheel. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it seems like there's going to be quite a lot of continuity. I mean, there might be a few points of difference, though. Um, I mean, Labour has promised this uh, take-back control mm. bill. Haven't seen much in terms of detail of what that might do, but from what we understand, the idea might be to create more of a consistent framework, more of a transparent process by which places can bid for and draw down powers from Whitehall. IFG recommendation? Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah, similar to things we've certainly recommended over the past couple of years. Um, and I think that would be welcome, yeah. I mean, it would put that whole process on a more transparent footing rather than what we've tended to see in the past, which is decisions taken in a pretty opaque way, frankly, about you know which deals ministers want to prioritise, what powers are on the table. Um, so I think that's one area. And, and then just, just finally, I mean, I think there's a possibility that we might see Labour start to broaden the devolution offer. It's been very much economic focused thus far. But, you know, if you look at what quite a few of the big Labour mayors have tried to do, they, they've tried to, you know, they set objectives that go way beyond just productivity and job creation and so on. And they they, they, they want to be judged on broader social and health and environmental outcomes, but they don't really have many of the levers to, to do that, although in places like Greater Manchester, you know, that is starting to change. But I, I think there's an opportunity and a pos possibility that we'll see Labour take a kind of broader conception of, of what devolution is for mm. and, and, and make a kind of, uh, yeah, broad, broader set of powers available. Okay, brilliant. Um, Matthew, bringing it back to something a bit more topical, um, 2024 started with a big focus on the scandal of post office horizon convictions. Um, what lessons should we take from that about the way government manages its public bodies? Mm, interesting. I mean, I guess the, um, the first and obvious lesson is don't start from here. Um, 
This has been going for a very long time, and when you're in a situation of having to pass emergency legislation to overturn convictions, this is, this is not where anybody would have wanted to be. Um, I think if you're interested in public bodies, th this case study has it all, um, ranging from uh, the role of ministers uh, and the extent to which they should have spotted things uh, earlier, uh, the, the role of civil servants and, and what their responsibilities are to see the patterns emerging in this case, then going down through all sorts of layers of complexity uh, with respect to the way the post office was organised. There was a lot of exceptionality over the period in which the convictions were happening in terms of the privatisation uh, of Royal Mail, in terms of the movement of regulation from postcom into offcom. Um, but also a lot of the usual complexity you have around public bodies uh, in terms of the differentiation of responsibility between the CEO uh, and the board and the shareholder executive overseeing the organisation from government and the civil servants and how all of that mapped together. So one of the lessons is this is incredibly complex and for a... Um, an issue that dragged on for many years, that complexity is overlaid by the churn of personnel within each of those posts and positions. And so trying to work your way through that is really important. In this case, it layers on also the issues around government procurement and how to manage contracts and issues around reliance on technology and whether you can actually assume that what the computer tells you um, is correct. So lots of different lessons learned here. I think the lessons that I would draw from a public body's perspective, looking at the institutional complexity around it, are, are really both clarifying uh, accountability as far as possible, so it is clear who is responsible for what decisions at which time, but more making sure that when somebody spots a problem, they know what to do about it and feel empowered to do that. In the case of ministers and civil servants, that's, well, once two or three people have told you something, you might think it's a bit odd, but once 10 or 12 or 15 people tell you something, what do you then do and how you act on it? For people in an organisation, it's, does the whistleblowing process really work? Do people really feel empowered to use that and to say what they see and know that they're going to be heard and not going to be hounded for that? Even in the private organisations like Fujitsu dealing with this, as well as um, uh, within, within government. Uh, and in terms of... Um, the civil service as well. What is the incentive not just to spot what's going on, but to actually grip it? With those number of actors in the system, it's very easy to assume that somebody else is going to spot what the problem is and somebody else is going to deal with it. And so there needs to be a positive incentive and recognition for people who actually spot the problem and, and, and take, it, take it forward. All right, thank you. Um, Jill, I'm afraid I've already got an online question for you. Um, which is the question I was about to ask you anyway. It is from Hannah White. Thank you. <laughs> Hannah White. Uh, what does Jill think the prospects are for the restoration of power sharing in Northern Ireland? And what should the government be doing? Thanks, Hannah. Uh, <laughs> is this going to feature in your podcast later? Well, it's really quite interesting because I've just written a blog. Uh, which is now going to go into the blog graveyard, uh, which was basically on the assumption that Chris Heaton-Harris would introduce a bill to basically postpone the Northern Ireland elections to beyond the next UK general election, which I thought was probably very likely to happen because, you know, just to work on the assumption that power sharing wasn't going to come back and join the chorus of people all saying well, Northern Ireland to have a government, but you can't leave the place completely ungoverned for another year till the election. Mm. So you need to actually work out how you're going to make some decisions here because it's not fair to inflict the uh, failures of politicians on both sides of the Irish Sea on the long-suffering citizenry of Northern Ireland. 
But fascinatingly, Chris Hickman-Harris has announced he's going to legislate, but only to prolong for two weeks, which gets him out of his statutory obligation, which expired last Thursday, to uh, call elections immediately, which he hasn't done and doesn't seem to be ending up in court. So that suggests, because he's going to have to bring forward another bill if, uh, if that one expires, that suggests that he does think there's some really realistic prospect of the DUP coming back or is turning up the heat for one last time before he has to flick over to his plan B. But I think none of this should detract from actually the scale of the problems that are facing whoever comes back into government in Northern Ireland. The problem is the need for a government becomes more urgent and the attractiveness of going into government becomes progressively mm. less attractive because the in-tray of problems is just mounting uh, as Northern Ireland, you know, public services, worst performers, nobody's had any pay increases because the civil service doesn't feel empowered to grant pay. They had that massive public sector strike last Thursday. And the amounts of money that are being talked about to restore Northern Ireland public finances, you know, we hear a figure of 3.3 billion, I think that's quite big. To put that into England relative terms, multiplied by 30, and then you realise you're talking quite serious money, which effectively is what the UK is saying has gone missing to stabilise public finances in Northern Ireland. So, uh, so I think it's good. If, it would be very good if the government could take two weeks and actually focus on getting, uh, getting government in Northern Ireland really back up and running, back on track. And then I think it starts, needs to start looking longer term at the institutions. There were some suggestions that came forward from the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee. Akash mm. may want to comment on this about changing some of the institutions to make them less vulnerable because you know since brexit northern Ireland has been without a government for much longer than it's had a government yeah akash yeah. on that and i mean the union more generally we haven't really touched upon it today oh uh, sure well yeah i mean just, just first then on on northern ireland um i mean i think yeah i, I uh, jill's of kind of explain very clearly the, the, the current political context. And yeah, the assumption has to be that they're quite close to getting a deal, or that's mm. the view in the Northern Ireland office. Um, but even if we do get power sharing up and running, yes, how, how, how long is it going to last this time? What will be the next crisis that, um, that, that strikes it? Um, history tells us there will be another one <laughs> coming down the line, unfortunately. And, and I do think that... Um, it's obviously going to be welcome if, if, if the parties are persuaded to go back into the executive together. But at some point, we are going to have to confront, I think, the, the question of whether the, the settlement as it exists is sustainable for the long run. Um, so, yes, the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee have made recommendations, so have lots of other people. The Alliance Party have been very strong on this, as you'd expect, because as it stands, you have this very odd situation um, in law that means that if, which is not an impossibility at all, the Alliance Party were to come second at a future Assembly election, they would not be entitled to take up the post of, of Deputy First Minister. Although, bizarrely, if they came first, they would be entitled to take up the post of First Minister, which is some weird stitch-up in the St Andrews Agreement, when it was never thought as possible that anyone other than unionist and nationalist parties would dominate. So you've got this settlement that at some point just might suffer this severe legitimacy crisis when a party that may come, yeah, may, may, may overtake, say, the DUP, 
um, is excluded from, from the top job. So, yeah, do, do, is there a, a route over time by which Northern Ireland can become something more like a normal parliamentary democracy where elections determine which parties form the government, <laughs> which is what, how normally these things work, I think. Um, so who knows, uh, over time, I think we might get there. I mean, just quickly, you asked about the union. That's, that's obviously a big question. I mean, mm. I think, you know, on Scotland, um, the SNP is still going to try and make this uh, an independence election. They've passed, the SNP passed a motion saying that's going to be mm. line one of the manifesto. They're going to claim um, if the SNP win a majority of seats because they definitely won't win a majority of, of votes. They'll struggle to win a majority of seats. But if they win a majority of seats, they're going to claim that's a mandate mm. to enter negotiations. UK government can quite easily ignore that. Um, so I think, what they, they, just quickly, because there's loads of stuff we could get into. Yeah. I think there is a risk that uh, an incoming government, whichever party... Um, but let's think about the Labour scenario. Having won a load of seats in Scotland, probably done quite well in Wales as well, comes in and is a bit complacent, basically, that this issue is settled. Because the reality is that Scottish voters don't see independence as a top issue at the moment. It's dropped down the order in terms of salience. So you're going to have a lot of pro-independence voters who will vote Labour. But ultimately, well, underlying that around 50% of Scottish voters still say they vote, they'd vote yes in another independence referendum. And it's a much bigger... It's a very clear majority among younger voters. And I say younger, mm. I think anyone above, below the age of about 50, <laughs> there's a majority in favour of yes. So the long-term constitutional issue is not settled. And I, and I think an incoming government should think about that and what is its strategy to... to to, to, to strengthen and, and secure the union, mm. not to mention the debate in Wales that. Well, I'll come back to Wales because I've got yeah. a question coming in, so I'll sure. come back to you on so. that in a minute. Give you a, a break for a moment. Um, Tim, I'm not going to ask you about Nicola Sturgeon's <laughs> DMs and WhatsApps <laughs> and so forth. Um, earlier today, Kwasi Kwarteng uh, in our panel conceded we'd had too many housing ministers, which mm. is some progress, um, but said it was a consequence of the political turmoil of recent years. Do you think that's a fair excuse? I think that's part of the picture. Obviously, we have seen not just 16 housing ministers in 12 years or however many it is, but five PMs, five education secretaries in one year, etc., etc. There's been a huge amount of turnover, partly because uh, of, of political events, political turmoil, but partly also because it's kind of become expected. People expect to be moved around. There's a there's a hope among journalists that there'll be a reshuffle soon because it gives them something to talk about. And I think there's this whole kind of sugar rush approach to uh, government in the last few years, which is, has actually become quite damaging. Mm. John Glenn said um, in his, his event earlier today that it was only one person who could choose when ministers move, the prime minister. That is strictly true, mm -hmm. but there have been ministers who said, actually, no, prime minister, I think it's better if I stay in post. Jeremy Hunt uh, asked to be held on as, as health secretary. Uh, under Theresa May because he thought there, were un there was unfinished business in, in the Department of Health. And I think if more ministers, it's harder, obviously, if you're not um, as senior as that and perhaps if you have a, a prime minister who is more secure in their position than Theresa May was at that point. But if more ministers sort of 
focused on what can I achieve in this role? How can I get things done here rather than always looking for the next advancement? I think that would be helpful. And it would be interesting to see uh, the Prime Minister was asked, I think, yesterday um, or over the weekend whether or not um, Jeremy Hunt would still be Chancellor at the election. It took him a couple of goes to confirm that. Um, we very much hope that he will be, not our party allegiance, but because stability in chancellors is a good thing, um, generally. Um, and um, we hope that ministers will, will do the same. And I think it'll be interesting to see what approach Labour take. They've set up their team. Will, if they get into government, will they carry across the same people into the same roles? Generally speaking, we think that makes sense because those people will at least know the issue, even if they're getting up to speed with how the department you works. You could argue, though, Tim, that Jeremy Hunt has been two chancellors in one chancellorship. There was the sort of, you know, the recovery stable, yeah. rebuild the public finances chancellor we saw when he first came in, and then we flipped to the you know, election-winning, yeah, tax-cutting, yeah. giveaway chancellor. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a change of person for it to be... <laughs> no, that obviously has to have quite a radical That's shift a, a of whole, policy. A whole other debate. <laughs> um, OK, I'm going to turn to the room now, so uh, please do stick your hands up if you've got a question for the panel. I'm looking around. Ah, we've got a couple here. Uh, so somebody at the front and then uh, behind. At uh, the front first... And if you could say who you are, just for the people watching at home. Graham Pendlebury, uh, former senior civil servant of the Department for Transport. I was listening to Kwasi Kwarteng this morning, who I thought was very thoughtful and, and insightful. But he said one thing that is undoubtedly true, but I still found quite shocking when he said that looking at the forthcoming budget, the Chancellor's principal sort of goal, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him here, will be to make sure he could balance out the competing interests within the different wings of the Conservative Party. He didn't say he would be taking decisions that were in the best long-term interests of the British economy and the British people. Uh, and I thought therein lay, you know, and I'm sure he, he, was, he, was, he was being oh, rather honest, if a little, you know, incautious in saying that. But I wondered if, if, you, if you had any comments on that, because isn't that part of the, the problem that, that, that we seem to have, that, that decisions are taken on those kind of narrow sectoral interests rather than thinking about what is the broader interest of the, of, of the nation and the people? Yeah, great question. We do have thoughts on long-term policy mm -hmm. challenges. Um, mm -hmm. We'll come back to that, uh, then at the back, and then another one over here. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Alex Thomas from the IFG. Uh, what would the election of Donald Trump mean for the British government? <laughs> Excellent question. Um, a good IFG question. I wondered... So um, sorry, David Halpern, Paper Insights team, Nudge Unit, number 10, and here. Um, whether you think what the IFG view is, is how ready... Um, the opposition is for a change of government, given that the IFG was just set up when we did the, the last one. And did I, how, is, how well has IFG done, or access arrangements, or all the rest of it? How ready are they? Um, we just had a report out on that, uh, David. Uh, I can come back to that yeah. uh, in it's a minute. It's definitely a question for you. Yeah, I know. I'm supposed to be just chairing. Jill, <laughs> do you want to tackle the question about chancellors and thinking about the long term? Uh, Yes. I mean, election year is never good for long-term economic policy making. I mean, you just sort of, you know, have to cross your fingers and hope we get through with relatively, you know, minimum damage to public finance. I think it really would be a shame if the government frames its economic decision-making this year into how can we make, uh, you know, if there's a change of government, how can we make their first year as difficult as possible with a view to making them a one-term government. I think that's not in the public interest. I think... You know, Kwasi Kwarteng probably was just giving us an insight into the day-to-day -day nightmare of trying to be a relatively sort of sensible minister operating in a very divided and factionalised party. And I think one of the really interesting 
if you like, legacies of Brexit is how the Conservative Party has, if you like, sort of dissolved into this uh, competing factionalism, which we haven't really seen on anything quite like the scale before, where policy manoeuvring has to be negotiated massively between lots and lots of you know, people whose primary identification may be the fault of WhatsApp looks at Tim, writes about WhatsApp a lot, but maybe the fault of WhatsApp who identify with the groups they're members of rather than with the party, rather with the whips. Quite a lot of people, I think, think that part of this is due to the poor socialisation of members who was, spent very little time in Parliament for their first year and a half because of the impact of the COVID pandemic. It'd be very interesting to see if you know, we have an influx of new MPs in the next election, which looks like we will under any scenario, how the whips go about <laughs> ensuring that, uh, that parties are a bit more disciplined coming forward. But yeah, and I think as uh, yeah, others said, as Giles said in his section, you know, fewer fiscal events are better. And if you want one of the most depressing insights into UK uh, tax policy making, can I commend? Uh, the George Osborne and Ed Balls podcast, which I listened to despite myself and really quite <laughs> like, um, where they discuss the pressures on Jeremy Hunt to be a very political chancellor and talk about you know, how he needs to frame it, needs to have more fiscal events, <coughs> and how crashingly naive Rachel Reeves is for thinking that there would be merit in one fiscal event a year. Uh, I have to say, IFG on Team Reeves on this <laughs> one, rather than on Team has been ex-chancellors and ex-shadow chancellors. Okay, before I ask whether any of the panel wants to talk about Donald Trump, um, Tim, I'm going to put yep. you on the spot and ask you this question about the opposition. I'm going to slightly reimagine it. What do uh, Labour need to do to be ready for government? Uh, what are the sort of key issues? And uh, also, uh, we have got a question from George Charles that says, uh, do the panel think that a prospective Labour government would have clear enough plans for government upon taking power or is it defining itself too much in purely anti-conservative terms? I think we could take the first part of that question about what you might need to do in terms of policy developments. So testing you on the recent paper that uh, I wrote. I was going to say that I haven't <laughs> properly read recently, but that's fine. Um, so I think what do Labour need to do for government is know what they sort of broad picture want to achieve. But what we always say is there is a danger in over-preparing. So um, and trying to hit the ground running too quickly and having a very fixed view of what it is that you want to do rather than what you want to achieve. And I think um, we've, we've heard from the panels earlier that Labour, you know, they've got broad policy offers. And if you want to, they've got lots of detail on their website that you can read through. Um, but they, the, the key thing that they, they are bearing in mind is that they haven't seen all of the detail, right? So I think it was Kwasi Kwarteng talked about every, every opposition says, well, we'll look at the books if and when we get into government. They will want to see what is actually happening inside government before they make firm decisions rather than committing beforehand to saying, this is what we are going to do. And we can talk about case studies of when things have gone wrong, when an incoming minister has been very fixed in their view of what it is they want to um, the way they want to approach something. So universal credit under uh, Ian Duncan Smith is a good example of that. In terms of what they actually need to do now, I think it's they've got, what, nine, maybe 12 months until the election. Um, it's continuing to build the relationships with the, the key groups that they want outside government. We know access talks have officially been sanctioned and maybe starting in the coming weeks. So using that, the senior um, members of the Labour team to build relationships with senior civil servants. There may be detailed discussions about what their plans are, but the civil service can't give them advice. What they can do is use that time to actually kind of build that relationship and understand where each side is coming from. Mm. Um, and in broad answer to, um, to David's question, I think 
this uh, opposition are spending a lot of time thinking about this. In a way, I think that's partly because the polls are where they are, it's partly because this election has been expected for a long time in a way that the last couple weren't. Um, and uh, also perhaps because of the nature of the front bench, there are a few, not many, but a few people who were in the cabinet under the last Labour government and a few more who were ministers. And so there is that more sort of uh, deeper experience perhaps of government than there was under the last set of oppositions. Um, I'm going to also quickly answer or have a go at the uh, Trump question, which is just to say I was in the Treasury um, when Donald Trump was elected last time. And uh, that was obviously six months after the referendum result. So uh, the Treasury at that point was kind of geared up for unexpected overnight election results or mm -hmm. uh, difficult overnight uh, election results. And I think since 2016, and there are many faults with this, but the UK civil service, if we're talking about that aspect of government being prepared for a Trump presidency, is, is used to dealing with crises, is used to dealing with unexpected events. And so that kind of muscle is well exercised. That cuts both ways because it means they are sort of often in fight or flight mode and reactive mode and not able to do the long-term strategy thinking that everyone in this building cares about. Um, but I think there are a lot of people who have been around this once already and they will have a sense of what they're going to be, um, what they'll be doing about it. All right, brilliant, thank you. Um, another question online, Akash, I'm afraid it's for you. Uh, Sarah Elias, on the back of the recent review of the constitutional future mm. for Wales, which I think you know about, um, what do you think uh, do you think any parties have a vision for the relationship between the devolved nations and UK government and what steps need to take place to move towards that vision? Uh, but remember, we've only got 10 minutes. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, so I might answer that linking actually to the conversation we were just having about specifically Labour's readiness in terms of having an agenda for what it will do mm. and, and because it's an interesting comparison to be made I think with with 97 when constitutional reform more generally but including very much the evolution was a huge part of the first first term under Blair and the, the, in particular the first couple of years and they were able to move very fast on that stuff because they did have a very well-developed set of proposals. The, there was the Scottish Constitutional Commission, a uh, convention rather, that sort of developed a blueprint. There were plans for Wales, for regional development agencies, um, London governance and so on. And, and that whole agenda was maybe not all the details, but, but it was sort of there, mm. ready for, for Labour to, even to some extent, despite... Tony Blair not being personally that enthusiastic about it, but it was it was there on the blocks for Labour to to run with very very early on, very early on after May '97. Um, they're clearly not at that point yet. I mean, we've had the Brown Commission, yep. we've had yes, the Welsh Commission last week, cross-party support, calls for further devolution and other reforms to entrench and protect Welsh devolution and that kind of stuff. But is UK Labour Party committed to either of that sets of those sets of proposals? Not clear at this point. I mean, already these shadow secretary for Wales seem to rule out some elements of the, the Welsh Commission report, mm. devolution of policing, for example. So I think they're still working it out, frankly, um, generally on, on, on devolution and, 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 and constitutional change, what they're what their agenda is going to be and you know we'll have other there's other proposals no doubt that you know metro mayors will be coming forward with with the extra powers they'll they'd like to get but yeah i think there's labor at the national level has a still bit of a 
bit of work to do to to get from from where we are now to, to a clear agenda. Yeah, um, Jill, you wanted to come in on Trump. Yeah, I just want to say something very quick about Trump. Um, Tim, I'm sure is right. You know, Treasury, the Bank of England do do sort of have form of uh, of practicing for that. But I think it's really interesting what sort of thinking is going on in governments and governments not just here but across Europe about the implications of Trump, uh, particularly if Trump does something which suggests that he's not committed to NATO, fall out of that potentially for Ukraine. And I think one of the really interesting questions, particularly if we have a sort of newer changed government with less experienced people in critical positions, is their ability to actually be thinking and partnering with people uh, you know, in the West on how to react to Trump. I think in the longer run, uh, a sort of Trump presidency may cause some sort of reappraisal of the UK-EU relationship and may actually cause Europe to rethink whether it really wants to keep the UK as a really important security partner at, uh, at quite the distance that was implied through the trade and cooperation agreement as agreed. We already think that, you know, one of the things on a sort of labor agenda will be adding a security foreign policy dimension to the deal agreed by Boris Johnson and David Frost. But do they really want to actually rethink some of the other things that Labour said they would quite like to rethink without forcing the UK to do what everybody's ruling out, which is joining the single market and the customs union? So I think it's really sort of interesting things going on there. I mean, I think that's sort of probably the only thing that might cause Europe to start thinking a bit more strategically about where does it want uh, its long-term relationship to be with one of the very big security players on the continent if Europe has to pick up uh, and fill a security void left by a Trump uh, accession. Matthew, I've been leaving you hanging, but I've got a great question online from Charlie Grady-Pierce, who asks, what are the panel's views on what a potential incoming Labour government would focus on in respect of regulators and regulation? Uh, which I feel you're well placed to <laughs> Which of your friends did you ask to put that question? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think... Um, it's an interesting question for an in, in, incoming government because, as, as we've seen in the course of the day, um, there's a lot of expectation and potential ambition around what the government can do, um, but not a lot of money to do it with. And so regulation is potentially a, a lever that is available to an incoming government that they can pull to try and do things that they want to do. So how do they influence behavior, influence the private sector without having to spend money? Uh, I think they'll need to think very carefully about the way in which they do that and the extent to which they do that. Um, and they'll need to think carefully as well about the, uh, the extent of responsibility that is put onto regulators in the process of making those decisions. I mean, some of the controversies that we've seen over the last year or two, I mean, post-Brexit really, around the, the accountability of regulators and the extent to which the degree of autonomy that they have is going beyond what the UK Parliament, for instance, might want, which is um, uh, an area of research that we're, we're getting into. At, at, at the moment, um, le leads you to, to think, well, how, how far 
um, would you would you want regulators to be making those decisions independently of ministers and what what exactly um, would would you want them to do and and this is going to um, arise in a whole in a whole range of, of areas where we're, where we're trying to enforce across across education across skills uh, and, and making trade-offs between for instance net zero which we discussed earlier um, energy bills um, and um, security of supply, for instance, in the utility space. And how do we want those trade-offs to be made? And to what extent is that for regulators to do uh, rather than for um, um, ministers or governments to make, to make those decisions? So I think an incoming government will have to think about what its position is on that, the extent of delegation it's happy to, to live with, and it will have to think about the extent to which it thinks relegation, uh, regulation is a policy tool. Thank you. Um, and there's a good question online, which I'm actually going to throw forward to uh, shortly our podcast, our live podcast from John Davies, who says, unless I missed it, little discussion today on migration, immigration. Does that mean panellists don't see it as a major election issue policy challenge? I think the reality is we do. Uh, but Hannah, as podcast host, uh, I'm going to leave that one with you. Um, final question then for all of the panel. I just want the month. When do you think the election's going to be? <laughs> so, uh, November. I've always said January, so I'm going to stick with January. I went with October in the sweepstake, and I'm slightly regretting <laughs> thinking November might have been better. But I went for November 21st, and I'll stick with that. December, then. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, no one going for May. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it. Um, please do stay seated and stay tuned in. We will seamlessly be joined by our director, Hannah White, in a moment for her concluding remarks. Um, But as she joins the stage, please do join me in thanking our excellent panel. Well, thank you so much, everyone. I think we build that as the IFG essential briefing, and I hope hope you'll all agree uh, it was exactly that. Um, So much to take away from from what you've all just been saying. Obviously, lots of topics we haven't had time to cover today, but so many that we have. Um, And I think threading through it all, as we would always uh, expect at the IFG, the importance of uh, making our government as effective as it can possibly be to tackle all the challenges that we've been discussing. It really has been at the forefront of the the different sessions we've had today, uh, the remarks we heard from uh, John Glenn, his speech on the reforms he thinks uh, he needs the the civil service needs. Uh, quite a, a fiery discussion on public service uh, performance with Quasi Quarting, Georgia Gold, and our last minute stand in Adam Bolton. Thank you, Adam, again for joining us uh, on that panel. Um, and Karen Smith, again, standing in for uh, West Streeting, setting out how the Labour government would, uh, if they came to power, try to improve the NHS. So it really has been a very thought provoking day ahead of what I think is going to be, we can all agree, a huge year for British politics. And delighted also to see presentation of our, uh, two of our major annual reports um, at the, uh, that we produce at the Institute, our performance track on public services and our Whitehall monitor out today. Remember, you can head to our website to uh, read those in more detail. I'm sure you'll want to. And while you're there, do sign up for our newsletter so you can stay in touch with everything that we do. Um, you're all quite a select audience, so you're probably all signed up anyway, but um, uh, if you ha- happen not to, and also do uh, consider subscribing to our two podcasts, uh, one of which will be uh, recorded live in a moment. That is our special event. We still have to come today, a live recording of The Expert Factor, which we uh, is on, uh, I keep saying it's a new podcast, it's not that new any longer, uh, but th- which we record with Paul Johnson from the IFS and Anand Menon from UK and a Changing Europe. So... Do stick around for that. Uh, But for now, I just want to thank 
all our brilliant speakers, without whom uh, we couldn't have uh, run the conference today. To thank you, our audience here, and also uh, at, at home, everyone who's asked and sent in such good questions. I want to thank my amazing team here at the IFG, all of those who've shared their expertise and uh, spoken on panels, but also the brilliant team who work away behind the scenes putting the whole day together, and we couldn't have done it without you all. Um, and finally, thank you to our partners, Grant Thornton, who helped turn the idea of today into a reality. So will you join me all in thanking all those people? Thank you.